is the final in our 11-part series on Timeless. I have loved it. Um, I'm told most of you have too, although I think some of you are like, can we get back to just doing a passage from the Bible? And uh, I'm feeling that as well. I'm kind of, whew, topical preaching, thematic preaching. It does take it out of you. As I'm looking forward in the summer, we'll be looking at the book of Judges, uh, going through the, that wonderful book of Judges, kind of book, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, camping out in that. But this morning is the final message, what does God's timeless design about ethics and sex and gender and life and so on and so forth, what does it have to say about the subject of abortion? Now, I don't know whether you came to church expecting that this morning or not. I don't know whether you ever heard a message on that subject or not. I don't know how you feel about hearing a message on that subject in these moments. I don't know whether you are neutral about it, uh, interested in it, excited about it, or quite the opposite. There are so, so many introductory comments that one can make. I've really kind of wrestled with this this week. I'll just distill those introductory comments down to a, a few. One is, of course, this is the subject that provokes enormous uh, debate and strong feelings, isn't it? You know that, politically, uh, socially, medically, religiously. But more than a subject that provokes debate, it's, a, it's an issue, it's a personal thing for some of us. So for some of us here this morning, this is not a topic for debate. This is something that goes right to our very personal story. Government statistics say that one in three women in the UK will have had an abortion by the time they're 45. There were 218,000 abortions in 2018 in England and Wales. That means there are about 600 every single day. 600 today, 600 more tomorrow. And that means it's a really personal issue for some of us. Last week, I was so privileged and uh, honoured when some, one of the w- women in this church came to me to tell me her story of having had an abortion when she was younger and of the, uh, the heartache that that had caused and the pain that she'd been through and the grace and kindness of God in restoring her since. It was such a, an amazing conversation. I was so grateful to her, admired her so much. I thought, wow, I'd love to be in a church where we can talk about these things and share our story. So if this is personal for you, it really is personal for us as a church. Okay? You're not the only one. Not because the stats say so, but because I'm telling you the stories in the life of our church. There are loads of things I can't say this morning, so before I get any further, just one final introductory comment, which is to kind of help us in some resources and some options after this. Because I will say some things that you'll be like, well, what about this? What about that? What about that? Okay, so a couple of, one practical thing, one more perhaps different kind of thing. This is a great book. It's called... Abortion by Dr. Lizzie Ling uh, with a guy called Vaughan Roberts. And it's just it's short, which sometimes is helpful for a takeaway book. But it really is deep in the sense that it's not, um, it's not light by any means. It is kind. It is caring. It is truthful. It is well-informed. It's a really, really helpful resource to be informed, but also to begin to kind of work through uh, the process perhaps of, of healing as well. So there are another 20 of these by the Connect Point, and you're really welcome to take one away if that would serve you in any way. The second thing is that we... Um, We've got Natalie Williams coming in a couple of weeks' time, three weeks' time, uh, from Jubilee Plus for our first Engage Sunday of the year when we think about the whys and the hows of how we engage with our world with justice and mercy. And and Jubilee Plus have recently partnered with an organization called We Are Open, which are basically a Christian organization seeking to offer a pastoral, um, meaningful, sustained approach to helping women come to terms with and find healing from and even redemption through having had an abortion. So we are open uh, 
www.org.uk is a website I've, I've found that I think is really, really helpful. I don't know enough about them yet to say definitely go for it, but I've, I've seen it recommended, I've heard some stuff, read some stuff, and I think we as a pastoral team in the office, whether it's me or John or Kate, if you are interested in that, we'd love to kind of help you uh, work through whether that's a, a really helpful thing to do, but I think, I think it could be. Weareopen.org.uk. So those kind of well, what about moments as we go through the, the next few minutes, please do keep in mind uh, the book and that website that I think might serve us probably better than I can serve us in these remaining uh, 30 minutes or so. We need to get into the Bible, right? It's the timeless word of God that we're trusting to help us understand these things. So without further ado, let's get straight into the Bible. We're going to ask two simple questions. What does the Bible have to say about the subject of uh, abortion? And secondly, how should we respond? Very simple. What does the Bible say and how should we as a church family respond? If you are new here, you're not not a Christian looking into these things, we are super glad that you're here. I love it about our church. People can come in and look and ask and wonder and explore. Just so you're clear, we're obviously coming at this this issue from a a particular worldview that would say, because we're convinced that Jesus lived and and, and rose again and affirmed the Bible as the word of God, we're going to come at it from trusting the timeless word of God as our lens through which to understand these things. You might come at something like abortion from a very different angle, and that's fine. But just so you know, that's where we're kind of coming from, and we'd love you to, I suppose, first consider, not least through Alpha, starting in a couple of weeks' time, are the claims of Jesus true? Because if they're not, like, all of this can be moved to one side. But if they are, if he was who he says who he was, if he did do what he claimed, Christians claim he did do, if he really did affirm the word of God as the word of God, that's, that's why we then stand upon it as our basis for life, okay? What does the Bible say? We're gonna start with Genesis, as we've often started in this series. We began in Genesis, we'll finish in Genesis. Genesis 1 verse one says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What does that have to do with abortion? Well, it reminds us of the big picture that I've just hinted at. Okay, we're not coming at this in isolation. We have a big story. Take that big step back. Our big story tells us the universe does have a beginning as most scientists would now agree. It tells us that that beginning comes from a divine creator. And so right from the outset, our big story as Christians tells us something quite different to the world's big story, which is that we're not the center of the universe, the creator of the universe is. And so we seek to live in accordance with him. That's the way in which we're coming to these things. And in fact, we believe that to be truly human, to really flourish as a human, happens if we live in accordance with the creator of humans. Second thing in Genesis that we're told is that that creator, as an expression of love, creates human beings with astonishing value and worth. Chapter one and verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God doesn't just create and say, now live according to my ways. He creates us as an overflow of his love and he creates us in his image. That means every single image bearer matters because God's put his own divine imprint on them and it means that God is particularly concerned for the most vulnerable and the needy, which in the superscriptures often summed up as the Bible talks about the fatherless and, the, and the, uh, the orphan and the alien and the refugee and the widow and the poor. And then thirdly, in Genesis 9, verse 6, we find out just how much God cares about the taking of life that he's created in his image. When he says to Noah, in chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. 
The context of that is that the punishment is severe because the image bearers are precious to God. So first of all, Genesis in very simple terms tells us that God is the center of all things. As Paul says in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. Secondly, that he forms human life unlike any other life uniquely in his image. So it has a particular value. And thirdly, so precious is that life that it's deeply wrong for us to play God and to take it. Stay with me. Luke chapter one is the next passage I want us to drop into, which you might often hear at Christmas, so if you're looking for an early festive feel, let me read Luke chapter one and verse 26 to you as the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and we'll see what else we can learn the Bible has to say. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Lots you could draw out from there, obviously. But what else does this tell us about this issue specifically? And like I said before, if you feel those moments of... I want you to stay with me. I want you to remember that God loves you, we love you, and we're really glad that you're here. First thing we see is that Elizabeth's baby is described as a baby. That's the language that is, that is used. Not a fetus, or an embryo, or a potential life, but a baby. Now, of course, they didn't have the language of fetus and embryo, so on and so forth, but that language is used deliberately. It's the same Greek word to describe John in Elizabeth's womb, as is used to describe Jesus in the manger after he's born. And that, of course, goes right to the heart, doesn't it, of this whole debate, is, is what is that life within the womb? Is it fully human in the same way a baby outside the womb is? And as science and technology has developed, we've started to understand more and more of the humanity of this baby in the womb. So here is a, a six-month uh, baby within the womb, um, which is the same age, roughly, 
24 weeks or so as John was when he was within Elizabeth's womb in Luke chapter one. And so fully formed is he or she that he or she could survive outside the womb right now with intensive care from the medical experts. And because he or she is not quite 24 weeks, he or she could also be aborted right now. We know, I think, instinctively that this is a, an, if not an image bearer of God, then a life blessed with the characteristics of human life. Let me just push it a little bit further, the next image, and if you're worried about the images I'm gonna show, these are the, these are the only two. This is a, an image at six weeks into gestation, just six weeks. So it already has millions of cells in size. It has a, uh, a basic heart, a basic skeleton, a basic nervous system, basic muscles. Its tiny hands are already sprouting rudimentary fingers. And the timeless word of God has always told us that human life is formed at, at conception. That's the age-old orthodox teaching of the Christian faith. And I think we see images like that and we kind of get it, don't we? That this little life is being formed at conception and is a life. Let me just keep that image up whilst I read a famous passage of scripture, which I think might help to bring this alive. This is what David says in Psalm 139 before any of the images and scans and science could have told him this. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And God says to Jeremiah even more concisely in chapter one and verse five, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So the Bible calls a baby in the womb a baby. And I think science is beginning to help us understand why that is. That won't convince you if you've come here this morning as a clear pro-choice person, but it's just unpacking the, the worldview through which we come at these things as people looking to stand upon the Bible. Secondly, we learn from that Luke 1 passage that Elizabeth's baby leaps with joy. Elizabeth's baby leaps with joy. And that's not particularly metaphorical, I don't think. We know again now that babies can respond with various uh, human reactions those of you ladies who've carried babies will know of the responses that start to emerge, hopefully for the good, as you are uh, nursing them. We know that uh, brain function is present in the baby at about six weeks after conception, that image that I just showed you then, and that responses to tactile sensation, skin tightening, bending, fist forming, can be observed at seven to eight weeks gestation. And if a baby can feel pleasure, then it, it would stand to reason that it can also feel the opposite that it can feel pain, and that's a, a very contentious debate, if you know these things, around the age at which a baby in the womb can feel pain. Um, and the evidence seems to be mounting that actually the age at which that can happen is earlier than was thought. I'll just give you one example. 
Uh, the Journal of Medical Ethics, that those of you of a, a medical qualification will know better than me, is a well-regarded journal. There was a recent article last year from two medical experts, one pro-life, one very pro-choice. The pro-choice expert was an expert particularly in pain, I'm told. And before uh, this research, he was convinced that babies could not feel pain before 24 weeks. But they just published this paper, and it said they, they have concluded that it's likely from their research that babies feel pain as young as 12 weeks in gestation. And they recommended that mothers be advised of that before choosing to abort. And of course, what we're doing when we, when we cause pain to a person in this context is not just causing pain, but it's, it's taking a life. If it is a life and it ends that life, it's the taking of that life. And in our country, it happens to the tune of 600 occasions every single day. And I know this is very emotive stuff, but just listen to what another non-Christian, pro-choice person would say. Antonia Senior, she's quite a well-known journalist in, the, in this country, pro-choice. She said that after um, having her own children, it kind of really challenged her, her views on being pro-choice. And she said this, uh, first of all, that she agreed that that life was formed at conception. She kind of didn't want to push back on that anymore. And then she said, any other conclusion than life is formed at conception is a convenient lie that we on the pro-choice side of the debate tell ourselves to make us feel better about taking a life. Pretty honest. But she then concluded that really that, that is a, essentially a necessary trade-off for the protection of women's rights. Her conclusion is, and she wouldn't be alone, is that the rights of the woman are more important than the rights of the little life within the womb. A necessary trade-off. And she wrote this, the single biggest factor in women's liberation was our newly found ability to impose our will on our biology. The 200,000 plus babies aborted a year in the UK each year are simply the lesser evil, no matter how you define life. To defend women's rights, you must be prepared to kill. That's somebody who's, I think, having the integrity and honesty to take their worldview, if you like, to its logical conclusion. This is a life, and, I, I, and I'm saying it ultimately has to take second place to the very important value of the woman in, the question, in, in question. So if necessary, we will take it. The third thing that we see in the Luke 1 passage is hope beginning to emerge. It's a very unexpected pregnancy. Mary's I'm talking about, one of Elizabeth's. They're both very unexpected pregnancy. Elizabeth should not be having babies at her age. And Mary's is equally unexpected, but for different reasons. Think, if you were planning, if God the Father said to you, I want you to arrange how my son is going to arrive as a baby in human form on the earth to accomplish my redemptive purposes, how would you do it? I'd put him in a royal family. I'd, put it, I'd give him the most outstanding, at the very least, I'd give him a, like a middle-class, married set of parents who are quite good parents, maybe with two or three kids, who'd like another one, and it'll be stable. I'd at least do that. And God doesn't. God doesn't. At the moment of Jesus' announcement, or the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary, Jesus is an unexpected and, frankly, scary pregnancy. Not to mention a miraculous one. Mary, in the context of first century Palestine, is facing up to the scandal of a pregnancy outside of marriage. Joseph's not the father, so the accusation of adultery, and potentially under Mosaic law to death by stoning. That's the 
the kind of parallel story that runs as she receives this news. Now I say, there are parallel stories running. Because at the same time, you can see if you, from that, that text that increasing awe and faith and amazement begins to rise in her as Gabriel helps her to understand just the profundity and the wonder of what she's been chosen uh, to, to, to do to give birth to the very Son of God. And you can see her faith and her peace and her awe rising and rising and rising. She says, yes, yes. But at the same time, her world has been turned upside down. It's not convenient. At the very least, her world has been turned upside down. I just love that for a moment. Just dwell on that. This is, this is, this is who God is. He loves nothing more than to step into the most unlikeliest and messiest of situations with unlikely people. And he loves to use those situations and those people to bless them and advance his cosmic purposes. You look at the story of the Bible. So many women in these kind of very uncertain circumstances, often around these issues of childbearing, encounter God's sovereign purposes. Think about uh, Sarah and Jochebed, Moses' mother, and Hannah and Rahab and Ruth and Elizabeth and Mary. They're all women who aren't supposed to be in the center of things. They're supposed to be on the edge of things. They're all kind of on the edge of life in some ways, all facing loss or infertility or exclusion or the shock of pregnancy. And God steps into that and he redeems them, and he blesses them, and he also honors them and dignifies them by extending his kingdom purposes and writing them into the story of the Bible. See, in God's economy, no pregnancy is hopeless. And no abortion is ever beyond his grace and forgiveness. I don't want to push that text any further than it goes, because of course, Mary and Elizabeth do have their babies. Of course they do. But my point is that look at the character of our God. He doesn't choose the nicely buttoned up and the impressive and the lives that look right and shiny. He steps into messy situations and he blesses them and he redeems them and he brings about good from them. And over and over again we hear in the Bible there is nothing, nothing beyond the forgiveness and the grace of God. Nothing. I appreciate if you come from a context where you don't think it's wrong, then you won't need me to put before you the forgiveness of God. But at least for Christians and Christian women I've talked to, the, the experience of like, is this beyond the pale? Is a really profound one. And I appreciate when a man stands up and talks about it, it can, it can help and it can not. But look at what the, word, the timeless word of God says. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the things the Christian church has done terribly is elevate certain things. And we've shouted about certain sins. That is really bad. Whilst pride and greed and laziness and busyness, they're okay. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all got our stories of brokenness, things that we know have not gone right, things where we've pushed back against the design of God. And the simple promise is that all unrighteousness, every bit of it, even the bit which you're now thinking, oh, not quite that, all of that can be cleansed in the grace of Jesus. Because when he died on the cross, he didn't say, it is finished and dealt with apart from. Just It's finished. Everything. I've, I've absorbed everything. I love what Gabriel says to Mary. Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing. No situations beyond his redemptive purposes. 
So, what are we saying the Bible says? It tells us that our big story tells us there is a God and it's not us. That we find our place in the universe when we submit to him. It tells us that the timeless design of God is to create life in his image, giving it unique and equal value. That such life is created in the womb at conception by God and that life has equal value to its mother and to its father. And to take that life is to violate God's good and perfect will. And that God chooses to reveal himself in the most unlikely and scary and unimaginable situations, that nothing is impossible for him, nothing is beyond him, his grace is everlasting, abundance, and you cannot outrun it. That's the big story we're stepping into. So how should we respond as Christians, as a church? Some C's to help you remember them. We should respond consistently. What do I mean by that? Like I say, Christians over the years, sometimes we've, we've gone for certain things. I think at the moment, to be honest with you, our tendency, at least as our church, is not to be the placard-wielding, placard-wielding, this matters more than anything else. Our tendency is just to be very quiet. It's been my tendency. I've not served you well as a church, I think, over the last three or four years in talking about some of these difficult things. So we need to be consistent. But at the same time, that means we, we, we talk about and we care about all the weak and vulnerable and marginalized image bearers of God. All of them. So we really care about the lonely elderly in our community. We really care about children living in poverty all around the world and we partner with compassion to, to lift them out of the poverty in Jesus' name. We really care about children, here we go, <laughs> uh, living in care in our, in our nation without a home for good. And we wonder and we dream as a church about what it might mean for us to be the solution and provide homes for good for children in care who otherwise are on a track towards depression and homelessness and jail, often. It means we really care about human trafficking. We care about the weak and the marginalized and the vulnerable because every single one of them is made in the image of God and God cares about them. And the early church got a hold of that. They didn't choose special issues. They cared about the weak and the marginalized and the vulnerable in front of them. They recognized that their faith had at its core the strongest laying his life down for the weakest. And they sought to reflect that in so many ways that they, that they could. That doesn't mean that you have to go and sort out all the issues I've just mentioned. See somebody having like a fire hydrant experience. I can't do all of those things. But the, the global church should be known more for caring about the weak and the marginalized and the vulnerable than it does for one particular issue. And we as a church can be far more than the sum of our parts as different ones of us will press into these various issues and seek to bring something of heaven to earth. Because there will be a day when only justice reigns, when only good is seen, when only perfection takes place. And our role as Christians is to be like Jesus and to live with grace and truth and to begin to advance something of the flavor and the wonder and the beauty of heaven to earth. We need to be consistent. Secondly, we need to be challenging. We need to be challenging. What do I mean by that? I don't mean we start getting placards and waving them around and so forth. But I, I do mean I want you to think about the arguments that are at play and just how inconsistent they are. Because we only hear one message, which is basically this. Abortion's a done deal. It's gone. It's in the past. If you even think about lowering the legal limit, let alone not wanting any of it at all or giving alternative options, you're not only misguided, you're probably bigoted, immoral, and backward. 
And us enlightened people, we've seen that that's what you're gonna hear most of the time. I wanna give you just a few tools just to begin to press back against that in grace and truth. First, I think, contradiction that's at play is the arbitrariness of personhood. Sounds fancy, what does it mean? It means the way in which we're deciding when this fetus becomes a person seems to me to be very arbitrary, both from a point of view of time, the time at which that happens, the moment in the womb, and from a point of view of function, what this life is able to do. So time, it was 28 weeks in 1967 when the abortion act took place that you could abort up to 28 weeks. Then lower 24 weeks in 1990 because that was, we then realized actually life was sustainable outside the womb at that point. Now children of 22 weeks are able actually to, amazingly to survive outside the womb. So that's kind of shifting. And then in Europe, it's different in different countries. All over the world, there's a shifting time limit. We're not quite sure. Where is this time at which this fetus becomes a life, which it suddenly inherits the attributes of personhood as worthy of protection? And the timeless word of God has an elegant simplicity about it. It just says, at conception. And so therefore, because people have realized that, I think, the debate shifted from the time thing, as the um, uh, Antonia Stewart quote told you, more towards a function, like can this life do what is reflective of human humanity and personhood? Does it have the attributes that qualify it to be person? So that's why there's more inconsistency. You can't abort any child up to 24 weeks unless, for example, that child has Down syndrome and you can abort up to full term. And we did, 706 of them, I think, in 2016. So it shifts all the time, the function. How do you meet this criteria? And the more that you start making decisions based upon uh, viability and dependability, and can the child survive outside the womb, and so on and so forth, does it have the attributes of a person? Is it a a rational and self-aware being? That's what Professor Peter Singer at the renowned Princeton University would say, and James Watson, who discovered the DNA helix, pretty bright people, That's what they would say. A person is a rational and self-aware being. And the logical conclusion of that is they would say post-birth abortion up to three days is justified. Because sometimes you only discover disability after after birth. Peter Singer has even said the chilling words that killing a three-year-old is a, quote, gray area. Because we're we're shifting this criteria. When does this life become a genuine life and warrants the attributes of personhood? We've got a very elegant, simple message to bring. Life is formed at conception and is worthy of rights and protection alongside its mother from then on. Second contradictions at play is that we, and I'm, again, this is sensitive stuff, so please bear with me. Miscarriage is mourned and abortion is celebrated. When I say celebrated, I don't mean that a woman having, a, having, a misca- having an abortion celebrates that. It's nearly always taken with extreme thought and duress and pressure. But if you just see the Northern Ireland ruling recently, you'd have seen people celebrating in the streets that decision. So why do we do that and we also mourn miscarriage? I've had the privilege of pastoring and praying with couples in this church and other contexts who've experienced miscarriage. And I can tell you, more importantly, they can tell you that that grief is very, very, very real. And the need for the comfort and healing of the Holy Spirit is very, very real. And yet, that, let's say, 12-week baby that miscarries in the, in the womb, that same baby, if it was to be aborted, that would be 
not something to be mourned, but to be at least considered to be normal or necessary. So we have the situation where, a, let's say, a 12-week-old baby in the womb is a fetus if it's not wanted, and a baby if it is. I think there's a contradiction there that we can gently engage in. Thirdly, abortion is necessary for women's health. That's the, what you will hear. A pro-choice argument often says, my body, my choice. And I get that me as a man talking about this, I'm on delicate ground, to, to put it mildly. And that argument is not without force. Of course it isn't. I watched a video of some American senators and congresswomen uh, just recently just telling their story of why they had an abortion and, and why it was justified. And you, ha- you have, to have to have a heart of stone not to be moved by their stories. And often that, those arguments will come down to these issues. One, abortion or pro-choice protects women's bodies from being controlled by men. And that argument has power to it, as we know. Two, that it protects women from losing out on life opportunities and career prospects. That argument has weight to it. Thirdly, what you'll often hear is that it protects women from being forced to have a baby after rape. And of course that has power to it. How can we begin to imagine what that's like? And fourthly, that it protects women from dangerous backstreet abortion clinics if, if abortion was illegal. All of those carry weight. We're not just dismissing those. Nope, nope, you're wrong. But there is a gentle pushback to bring, which is, does it really protect women? It's a hotly contested area. You could probably choose the stats that you wanted to, but I'll use this phrase. It seems there's little doubt that abortion is a contributory factor for women in infertility, recurrent miscarriage, premature birth, and ongoing mental health issues. Very few women or men are left unscathed by abortion. It's not as simple as it just protects women's health. And certainly it doesn't protect the women in the womb because girls are disproportionately aborted compared to boys due to gender sex-selective abortion. So in in, uh, China and India, it's said that there are 23 million missing girls due to specifically sex-selective abortion. And the timeless word of God was saying, no, no, no. Intrinsic and equal value and worth. So we should be consistent. We should gently challenge in grace and truth, as Jesus seemed to always do. And thirdly, we should care, obviously. We should care. We should build a church culture where you can talk about these things as that wonderful woman did to me last week. We should seek to build a culture where nothing is off the table. We don't don't elevate the sins that we don't struggle with. And that we simply build a culture where everything can be brought into the light because the light overcomes the darkness and there is grace and restoration to be. I can say those words. It takes a while to do them. But we we should try and we are. Men should care. I wrestled a lot with whether I should give this message and whether I should ask a woman to give it. But I think if I didn't, it would say something, which is this. This is a women's issue. And it's not. Biologically, it's not. Socially, it's not. What if the men involved in every single difficult, scary, unwanted pregnancy took up their responsibilities and tried gently to find a way? What if we had more Josephs? Go back to that. I, I didn't read you Matthew 1, where the spotlight shines on Joseph, not Mary. And he says, God, what 
I'm engaged to her and she's pregnant before we've got married and not through me. And it says he resolved to divorce her quietly. But he meets with God and instead what does he resolve to do? To stick with her, to love her. Essentially to adopt Jesus as his own son. And that's why I'll never tire of putting adoption and fostering before you because it's right at the heart of the gospel every time you look at it. Jesus Christ submits himself joyfully to being adopted by a human father. There were two women in this church, Liz Corbett and Sophie Ford, both of them, now I'm going to say this, both of whose mothers uh, couldn't, felt they couldn't look after them and so carried them to full term and gave them up for adoption to parents who, I think at least one case, couldn't have their own children and were delighted to be able to parent them. And they're with us as a result. And you won't hear much about the choice of adoption in the pro-choice media, which is ironic, given it's a pro-choice thing. What if the church was known, not for campaigning against abortion or just lobbying against it, but for being a solution to fostering and adopting? That's like one of my biggest dreams for us. It really is, <laughs> as you can tell. What if the local council would say, King's Church, not quite sure about all the things they teach, but they just keep on taking children that are in care. They keep on taking children and giving them a home for good and loving them. And we know the stats. Those kids are often going to end up in jail or homeless or with mental health issues, and they're not. What if that's how we were known? What if there were children in, in this congregation who would otherwise have been aborted, but their mothers had found a way, and I know it's more complex than this, but to carry them to full term and to give them a life through adoptive parents. There's loads more I could say. And um, I've just wrestled with this so much this week and I know of there's much more that could be said. Um, but I just wanted to pray for us, if I may. Uh, I know it's a difficult one to land this series with. That's why we can gather together next week to ask questions. Um, but I just, when I was preparing for it, I didn't plan to talk about this, but I just thought, if we don't address this, we're just, we're just missing out on something that's part of the timeless design of God. And the message will be, actually, we talk about transgender, homosexuality, all those things, abortion, oh, no, 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 no. And I, I'm not up for being that kind of pastor. There's nothing off the table. If we're going to build a real culture of authenticity, we'll talk about the whole stuff. Because God cares about every single part of our lives and our bodies and he has such good plans and purposes for us. And I'm so pleased that lady from our church told me last week, this is what happened to me. This is how it almost broke me. And this is how the redemptive healing purposes of God healed me and it gave me a story to tell of his grace and his goodness. And somehow he's used it for good. And that can be your story too. If you are in a situation right now where you are facing an unwanted pregnancy or a scary pregnancy, which happens in churches. Let's just call it out. I just would love you to hear that verse 37 from chapter one that Gabriel said to a terrified Mary, nothing is impossible with God. That's true. If your friend is, or your child is, or you know someone, just take hold of that one, if nothing else this morning, take hold of that one verse we have a God for whom nothing is impossible. There is a way. He's the way maker. So I would love you to consider talking 
uh, to me, to Becca, just emailing in to the pastoral team in the office, John, Kate, myself, thinking about this healing retreat with We Are Open, taking a book away. I love what Seamus modeled to us last week. Very different, but his testimony last week, he modeled to us the moment of just taking a step and just talking to someone. Game changer. Healing, freedom, restoration, life. I'm just going to pray for us, that's all right. And then, um, Dan, if you could come and lead us, uh, as you've already done so, so wonderfully. Um, I'm just going to pray for uh, two things. For any, of, any, of, any, for any of us for whom this is a live issue, it's personal, and for us as a church as we seek to be like Jesus and engage with our world in grace and truth. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but the first prayer I'm going to pray is for you if this is personal, either because it's happened to you or it's present and it's right now, okay? Or if anything else I've said has just touched on, on the present reality for you. Heavenly Father, for those people who just in their hearts are responding to you stretching out your hand of grace, would they really experience right now just the, the kindness and the tenderness of God the fatherly and gentle hand of God. Drawing them, if it is repentance and forgiveness, Father, draw into that moment. If it is actually receiving prior forgiveness and living in the good of it and stepping free, Father, draw them into that moment. I pray for anyone right now that is considering an abortion right now way maker he for whom nothing is impossible would you just gather that precious daughter in your arms and help us as a community to make a way and I pray for anyone for whom other things have been touched here infertility miscarriage children who've gone different ways just Come and lavish each person with your grace and your kindness, Lord. Right now. If you're experiencing just the tenderness and kindness of God in these moments, and you're feeling it emotionally or physically, that's fine. That's normal. If you're not feeling anything, that's okay. He's still at work, I promise you. And finally, God, I pray for us as a church family. Would you teach us how to be open and honest with each other? Would you teach us how to be honest about all the forms of brokenness that we all carry into the Christian life and that by your grace you sanctify us through? Help us to be quick to confess, quick to be honest with each other, quick to be drawn into the arms of God. And I do pray that we'd be a church who would seek to love children in every possible way. And I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. I pray for all the things that haven't been said that should have done. Would you make a way? I pray for anything that's been said that shouldn't have been said. Would you make a way? Because you're God. And I do pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty, mighty name.